So if you are new or have been bunking church or whatever might have been happened, you might have missed the fact that we are doing this journey called Guardians of the Gospel. Why? Because the Bible says that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Salvation, not just a ticket to heaven, but that word salvation is the same word deliverance, is the same, that transformation. The gospel is the power of God to save, to deliver, to transform any life. That's why I love it. I think we, we just haven't even glimpsed at the incredible power inside of the gospel. And yet the Bible also says, Paul said, my concern is that the, the power of the cross might be emptied. In other words, we can actually, in our own lives, the, nothing can ever take away from the power of the cross, but it can be taken away in your life. And the power of the cross can be diminished in our lives when we drift from the purity of the gospel, the truth that's proclaimed in his word. So that's what this journey, guardians of the gospel, is all about. We don't want to play church. We don't want to be religious. We don't want to get through kind of Christian routines just because that's what we're supposed to do. We want to walk in the truth of the gospel in our lives, in our marriages, our finances, our workplace. We want to see our city change. We want to make an impact. And the gospel can do it in us and through us if we walk according to his truth. And so what we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, uh, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches, giving them seven key principles, warnings to stay, to maintain the course and stay in the purity of the gospel. Remember week one to, uh, to Ephesus, the gospel power is released when we love Jesus. Love Jesus. If you want to know one secret ingredient to the gospel, love Jesus. Just love Jesus. Don't focus on being a good Christian. Focus on loving Jesus. See, when we're in love with Jesus, it'll naturally we'll want to walk according to his ways. Secondly, gospel power is redeemed when we suffer well. The gospel doesn't rescue us out of suffering. It redeems suffering in our lives. Because remember, before there's a resurrection, there's a cross. And while we're here on earth, there will be times when we walk through suffering. We can't avoid it. Don't try and uh, dodge a duck it. Walk through it to the glory of God because God wants to take suffering in our lives and redeem it for His glory. That's why sometimes we have to resist and sin. We have to stand strong. Sometimes we don't understand, God, what you're doing, but you are faithful. And as we walk through suffering to the glory of God, first comes the cross, then comes resurrection, life, and power. Last week, looking at gospel powers restored when we come back to the truth, back to the truth, aligning our hearts and lives with what his word says. Now, today's a big one, probably the one that has uh, so far challenged me the most. Today, we're going to talk about the fact that gospel power is reclaimed when proper authority is maintained. Gospel power is reclaimed when correct authority systems and structures in our lives are maintained. So let's dive right into it. It's a letter to the church in Thyatira. I don't exactly know how to say it, so that's my best guess. And if I gave it a heading, it would simply be this. The gospel hinges on authority. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. To the angel or to the leader of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, da -da -da -da, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. 
By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Yikes. Verse 24, now. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What an amazing letter. Yo. And I suppose we could spend a couple of weeks probably unpacking everything. But I want to, once again, remember each of these letters starts with an incredible revelation of Jesus because it's always the revelation of Jesus that unlocks breakthrough in our lives. Breakthrough doesn't come when you try harder. Breakthrough doesn't come when you kind of your effort or your hard work. Breakthrough comes when our eyes are open to a greater revelation of Jesus. So before Jesus says anything and corrects them, he first gives them the revelation of himself. That's the key that's going to unlock the breakthrough and the key that's going to unlock a reward in their lives. That's why I'm going to say it and keep on saying it till I die. Your revelation of Jesus is the greatest treasure that you have. And Jesus is so vast and so enormous that we should spend the rest of our lives desperately hunting for a greater and greater revelation of Jesus. We want to see your beauty. We want to see your majesty, your power. Jesus, the shepherd, the bread of life, the resurrection, the life, the Savior. We want to know Jesus more and more and more. So there's two parts to this revelation. Number one, he says, these are the words of the Son of God. Now that's interesting because most times when Jesus referred to himself, he actually spoke of himself as the son of man. Jesus came from heaven to earth to identify with man. Everything about Jesus, he wanted to carry our humanity. So he would normally refer to himself as the son of man, the son of man. But now he says to the church, this is the son of God talking. Yikes. Straight away, I want you to, I want you to see that this picture today is not the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon your little child. It's not that. It's not the Jesus baby in a manger. That's not the picture of Jesus here. Jesus addresses the church and says, this is the son of God who's now talking to you. And he carries on and he said, uh, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. When this church read this, the Jewish folk who grew up reading the Old Testament would straight away remember, but hang on, that's the picture Daniel saw. In Daniel chapter 10, verses 4 to 8, it says, On the 24th day of the first month, as I, this is Daniel, was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from that place, Ufaz, and around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. So it's the same vision. He's seeing the same thing that John saw. What I want you to notice now is the response. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. 
So all the people with Daniel, they didn't even see the vision, but the mere presence of this vision sent the others absolutely terrified, running to hide in caves. Verse 8, so I was left alone. Gazing at this great vision, I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. (laughs) What revelation is Jesus bringing to this church? I think Jesus is wanting to catch their heart. For me, I'll sum it up like this. This is the revelation of authority and power. This is not the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is not, remember, the intimacy to Ephesus. This is not that encouragement to Saul or Smyrna. This is the power and authority of the Son of God. This is how the letter ends. This is the one quoting from Psalm 2 in Revelation 2.27 that will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery just as I have received authority from my Father. That's a quote from Psalm 2 where it says, Ask of me, I'll make the nations my inheritance and Jesus will rule them with power and authority. So in one word, this revelation that I want to challenge you with today that Jesus wanted the church to grow in was the revelation of Jesus Christ, the one who has all authority and power in his hand. And I want to ask you, church, this morning, do you have that revelation of Jesus? You see, we have this incredible privilege of being able to call Jesus brother. We, we, we together with Christ, we in Christ. And, and over the last, I suppose, 20, 30, 40 years of church history, there's this, this been this beautiful, this right move towards this, this intimacy with Jesus and enjoying his presence and fellowshipping with Jesus. All of that is good. But church, let's, let's not allow the fear of God to be lost with the familiarity of God. Does that make sense? When we can become so familiar, just enjoying hanging with Jesus. No, no, no. This is the son of God. And we need to carry inside of us. It's almost like the church had lost that fear of God. Yes, we can call him father. Yes, we can just enjoy time before his throne. But let's not forget the fear of God, the authoritative, all-powerful one. So with that in mind, he then speaks to the church. He commends them firstly for their deeds, their love, their faith, their perseverance, their hard work. On the surface, it looks like the church is doing really well. And in many ways, the church was doing really well. Nevertheless, Revelations 2.20 says, I have this against you, you tolerate. I just say tolerate. This is the word that's going to unlock this letter for us. This is the word I want to focus on today. This word is why the gospel was not working properly in the life of this church. This word, tolerate. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Tolerate. Tolerate means you know something is wrong, but you don't do anything about it. You just kind of let it slide. Tolerate means you have the authority and your authority is being violated, but you don't do anything about it. Tolerate means you're responsible for something, but you've abdicated that responsibility. Tolerate means for whatever reason, you leaving a door open that should have been firmly shut. Maybe because of fear, maybe because of laziness, maybe because of busyness. For whatever reason, tolerate means something is within your authority, your responsibility, your power, but instead of dealing with it, you've let it slide. The gospel only works in an environment of authority. It's amazing. The key to the gospel to change our lives is not the day you accept Jesus as your savior. 
It's the day you accept him as your Lord. Lord means leader, means master. That's what unlocks Jesus saving you is when you choose to bow your knee to the Lordship of Christ. You see, repentance is really about authority. Before we repent of our behavior, we first have to repent of the authority. From being under the authority, slavery to sin, to saying, Jesus, I want to be under your authority. There's no middle ground. Either you're going to be under the authority of sin, Satan, and the world, or you're under the authority of Christ. That's the defining moment in our lives. When we choose to make Christ Lord, He saves us. It's sadly the gospel is sometimes preached as you can choose Jesus as your savior. And many are like, yes, I, I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven. But there's no changing of life because there's no lordship. There's no bowing our knee, confessing sin and bowing our knee to Christ to follow him. And that's a false gospel. You see, Jesus saves those who are in his kingdom. In his kingdom means under his kingship. He is Lord. So the gospel works in an environment of proper authority. Jesus as Lord, not sin. Jesus as Lord, not our selfishness. Jesus as Lord, not some manipulative spirit. So what were they tolerating? That woman Jezebel. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about that woman Jezebel. Let's start with that woman. If I'm going to walk on eggshells, I might as well just jump on them this morning. Husbands. It's your role to carry the authority in your household over your wife and over your children. You might have a wife who's an incredible leader like I have, but that doesn't mean you can abdicate the authority which has responsibility for your home. Husbands, God has given you authority in your home. That's it. You can argue with God if you don't like it. Women, you can argue with God if you don't like it. That's what his word says. Now, in the same way, He's given elders authority in the church to lead the church. That's it. That's just the way God's, he's given them authority. That's why the Bible says you should submit to your elders to make their job a joy and not a burden because they need to give an account one day. There's responsibility. God gives authority to human instruments to exercise his government rule and reign here on earth. That's just the way it is. The problem here is that the elders in this church had abdicated that authority. Part of that authority is to set the doctrine of the church, what is preached, what is allowed into the church in terms of the gospel. Now, what happened in this church, instead of the elders exercising the authority to say, no, no, this is truth, no, this is error or heresy, they were allowing a teaching into the church, which was clearly more about Baal worship than it was about Jesus' worship. Interestingly enough, Baal worship was all about the worship of prosperity. It was a, a worship of a fertility God. What will make us prosperous? That's what it was. And so the elders were allowing to be introduced teachings and practices into the church that should never be allowed. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, I do, this is Paul speaking, and he's speaking to Timothy. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, some of you hate that verse. Some of you think, I can't believe that's still in the Bible. Here's the thing. This is not about being quiet. This is not about being wordless in the church. That is about being contentious in the church. And Paul was, and we're not going to unpack this whole verse, but basically Paul was speaking to Timothy as an elder in the church, and he says, don't let women become contentious in the church. That's not the place to have squabbles, arguments, and demand your own way. Is that okay? 
So that's why we've got lots of women who teach and minister and sing and all of those things. He's speaking about here, about authority. That's the context. And he's saying, I don't want them to be contentious. The elders were supposed to set the doctrine of the church, and this eldership team were not following Paul's advice. The elders were tolerating this woman to set the doctrine of the church, which was clearly false doctrine. Problem number two, Jezebel. It's not often you hear people call their kids that nowadays, is it? It's not really one of those most... uh... Who was Jezebel? Jezebel was the daughter of the Sidonian king, and this king of Sidon happened to be a priest of Baal as well. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31, all the way back in the Old Testament, we learn about her. It says about Ahab, who was king of Israel, it says he, Ahab, not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal. Ethbal simply means with Baal. So her dad's name was Amuthbal. I mean, that's pretty clear right there. He was king of the Sidonians and began, this is Ahab, began to serve Baal and worship him. So in other words, the king of Israel, he probably didn't marry her because she was beautiful or had they had courted, but rather the custom in those days was let's make a peace treaty. My nation, your nation, let's not fight each other. Let's make a peace treaty. Give me one of your daughters. I'll marry one of your daughters. Now we're family, now we don't fight. In other words, compromise. See, as king of Israel... God said, I will be with you. I will fight for you. Instead of trusting God through conflict to stand for what God had said, this was a compromise. How do we give in to make a peace treaty? And the peace treaty was marrying, covenanting into what he should never have made a covenant with. As king, he allowed her to establish temples of Baal and train hundreds of priests of Baal in Israel. Some of you will remember the famous story of Elijah when he called down fire. Remember that? That was because of this. Ahab had opened the door for Jezebel into the kingdom. She built all of these Baal temples. She trained hundreds of priests of Baal. And that's why Elijah had to step up and contend with them and call down fire on his sacrifice. The worship of Baal involved temple prostitutes and sexual immorality as a form of worship. Remember I said it was a fertility God. So that's how they worship God. Go to the temple, temple prostitutes. This is a a kind of a, a form of worship to fertility. It was just immoral. It was demonic. And yet Ahab opened the door for this. Part of it was feasting with food offered to Baal. Instead of Ahab leading his wife to worship the Lord, he just followed her and began to worship Baal. Instead of leading her, he whined to her. He was a wuss, to be honest. He really was. He, he wanted a little field. For goodness sake, he was king. I want this field so I can grow a little grapevine. His wife said, I'll take care of it. And she killed the guy who owned it, said, here's your farm. What are you worried about? So, I mean, clearly she had zero fear of God. And she certainly was the one leading him, not he leading her. He didn't set the culture of the kingdom. He allowed her to. Even after a mighty victory over the priests of Baal. Remember what happened? Elijah just called down fire upon the sacrifice. And and then what did he do? Face to face with Jezebel. Jezebel says, the sun's not going to set before you dead. He just turned and ran away from this woman. I mean, come on. You've just called down fire from heaven, for goodness sake. And yet in the face of Jezebel, he turned around and ran off into the desert. So Jezebel, in a nutshell, she despised authority. She manipulated to control. She threatened when she didn't get her own way. She had zero fear of God. And this was the spirit that the elders were allowing into the church. Hectic, isn't it? 
But we want to learn from this today because it's not just a letter to the church. It's a letter to our lives as well. Because remember, the gospel hinges on authority. Under the authority of Jesus, aligning our lives with the authorities of God. Husbands leading wives. Wives submitting to husbands. Children submitting to parents. Parents leading your children. Elders leading well. Bosses. Government. In every way, there's authority systems to be stewarded well. What's the big idea? Authority and the power of the gospel go hand in hand. The gospel only works in a heart that's submitted to the lordship of Jesus instead of tolerating illegitimate authorities. Jesus, we know he disarmed the power of the enemy, yet we can give him back power in our own lives through not understanding authority and submitting to false authority. So who or what is exercising authority in your life? That's the question. Two little examples quickly. My angelic son who sits here in the front row, picture of absolute... Uh, <laughs> I remember days gone by when uh, probably the two-year-old stage, you know, taking uh, my boys off to pick and pay and you just go and buy bread and milk very quickly. And I don't know how you could own one of these grocery stores and pray the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. And then they always put those sweets right next to the the checkout. You know what I'm saying? Like, lead us not into temptation. Then they put temptation right there. And so here we go sitting in the trolley and your two-year-old looking at all the sweets. Dad, I want a sweet. It's like, no, son, you've already had enough sweets for the day. Now, who has the authority? (laughs) Dad. (laughs) Who wants to get his own wool? The two-year-old. And depending on how gifted your children are, they might be able to really perform one of those beautiful tantrums right there in the middle of a pack, pick and pay, you know, with head banging, hair pulling, screaming. And what's happening right there is an authority clash. What should happen is dad or mom step up enough. We're going to deal with this and dealing with it might involve some pain in terms of discipline. What happens too many times, and most of us are probably guilty of it, is like Ahab, you make an illegitimate agreement. Okay, 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 okay. If you just stop yelling, have the sweet, but I'm not telling, I'm, this is my fifth last warning, no more. <laughs> and so you pander, give in, and guess what? You've set yourself up for suffering into the future because there's been a, an authority transfer that has just taken place. The two-year-olds worked out, got it. This is easier than I thought. <laughs> That's what we're talking about today. Now, that's a funny example, but actually it happens. And a biblical example was with the, the high priest Eli. Eli, remember Samuel? Remember the story of Samuel? Samuel was mentored by the, the high priest Eli. Eli had two sons who should have been the next priests, but his two sons had no fear of God. Listen to what it says in, uh, in 1 Samuel 3, verse 13. It says, For I told him, that's Eli, that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Hectic. In other words, that family line was brought to an end. He had the authority. His sons were acting terribly, and he didn't do anything about it. Are you tolerating what shouldn't be tolerated. I'm not talking about being a bully. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm talking about the gospel works in an environment of correct authority. Hearts surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, 
Husbands and wives working out authority in their lives. Families coming under the authority of moms and dads. Authority in the workplace. Bosses able to lead their employees. Employees submitting in the church. In every area, the more we under authority, the more we'll be in authority. God's authority flows through our lives. And yet this is not popular because we live in this... this, um, individualistic, humanistic age where I'm under no one's authority. We want to be this autonomous kind of, I'm the captain of my own destiny. And at the root of it is this thing, I refuse to submit to any authority. Well, if you do that, just understand that what you're doing is you're limiting the power and effectiveness of the gospel in your own life. So let me land very quickly. As guardians of the gospel, how do we respond? Here's your homework. It's a simple verse I'd love you to memorize if you don't know it yet. James 4 verse 7. Many of you will know it. I'll give you the first word. Therefore, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's it. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is what Jesus was wanting the elders in the church to do. Come back primarily to your place of submission. You're in authority when you're under authority. You can't have authority over that which has authority over you. We've got to start from the place of submission in our own lives, primarily under the lordship of Jesus, truly surrendering. And remember, we measure Submission. We measure surrender by obedience. That, that's what it looks like. We can say, oh, Jesus, you're my Lord. And Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I'd say? I mean, it's a, it's a good question. We can sing about the Lordship of Jesus as much as you want, but it's measured in the obedience in our lives. Are we truly surrendered to him? Submitted to government authority, submitted to family authority, submitted to church authority. The more you willingly put yourself under authority by faith, the more you'll see the fruit of authority of the gospel at work in you. But then number two, submit yourselves to God. Resist. This is the exercising now of authority in our lives. Just like the dad should have resisted that two-year-old tantrum. No, it's not going to happen. We're going to deal with this. Just like Eli should have resisted his sons and say, not acceptable. This behavior will not be tolerated. Just like the church elders should have faced up to this woman, whatever was going on, say, absolutely not. I don't care what you're going to do, yell, scream, perform, doesn't matter. It's not happening. They should have been resisting instead of tolerating. To resist is the opposite of to tolerate. And that's the point of repentance today. That's the challenge. And I have been challenged by this thing. Are there areas of my life where I should be resisting instead of tolerating? Are there areas in your life where actually you should be resisting instead of just pandering, enabling, or tolerating. What's the result? Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Here's the good news I want to leave you with. I want you to notice very quickly what Jesus actually says about how the problem in the church is going to be dealt with. And I want you to notice how six times in these next few verses that we read, you hear, ah, I am, I will I have. He says in Revelation 2.21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the church will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. And I was, here's the thing. When we come to that place of submission to the Lordship of Jesus, when we're willing to step up and resist, even if you feel intimidated, afraid, or whatever it might be, the door opens for the great 
I am to do what only he can do. And I love that because this is the good news. Jesus said, I will fight on your behalf if you will stand, submit to me and resist. And I am will step in and deal with the issue. Which is such a a beautiful thing. I want you to hold on to this line. Here's the big idea. If we will face the fight, Jesus will fight the fight. We see that right through the Old Testament. If we'll face it, Jesus will fight it. Remember Jehoshaphat? That amazing three armies and they got the worship team. He's just saying, go and face them, face them. You're not going to have to fight it, but you do have to face them. Sitting on the couch as Christians doing nothing, our God will take care of it, is a lie, wrong. You've got to go and face the fight and Jesus will fight the fight. He said to the Israelites, all of the promised land, I'm giving it to you, so go and fight. (laughs) Jesus, are you giving it to us or are we fighting for it? No, no, I'm giving it to you by giving you victory over your enemies. You see, it takes faith to face the fight. But if you'll stand, husbands, begin to stand and lead your wives. Dads, moms, lead your children. Bosses at work, lead your employees lovingly, godly, but firmly using authority. As we face the fight, Jesus will fight the fight. And then the reward to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I received authority from my Father. Isn't that beautiful? What a reward. If you learn to exercise authority in your own life and in your church, I'll give you greater and greater authority out there. Now, church, we call to be an apostolic people. We trust in God for authority to work into more and more nations and regions. And Jesus said, I will give you authority out there if you learn to exercise authority here. That's the reward. Jesus, help me to live under your authority, to exercise godly authority in a loving way, but firmly, lovingly. And Jesus says, and I will give you authority over the nations. Oh, and one more thing. I'll also give you the morning star. Huh? (laughs) Apparently Venus is the morning star. It's not even a star, actually. It's a planet. But here's the thing. Apparently it rises just before dawn. And if you're a watchman, and it's snowing outside, and it's freezing cold, and you can't wait for your watch to be over, and then you see the morning star arise. What are you feeling? Thank you, Lord, finally. Hope arises. You see, when leaders who are supposed to lead don't, they become passive, tolerating, and wussy, hope disappears. In a nation, when leaders, instead of confronting corruption and greed, begin to open the door for it, hope in a nation, yeah, But when leaders begin to exercise authority in a godly, integrity-based, loving way, the morning star rises and hope begins to grow in our hearts, in people's hearts. So, the gospel hinges on authority. Have you received Jesus Christ as Lord in your life? Are you submitted to the authority of the Word of God? Are you submitted to government leaders? To, to church leaders? Are you submitted in family situations, in work situations? Authority is huge in the kingdom of God because you've got to be under authority to walk in authority. May the gospel power flow freely through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand with me, please? If you don't mind, just closing your eyes where you are. 
And once again, just asking the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of truth. He leads and guides us into all truth. Are there areas of your life where authority is out of line? Have you been tolerating instead of resisting? Dare I ask, have some of you been playing on Jezebel's team? Father, we come before you this morning. And I pray, Lord God, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would give us a revelation of Jesus, Son of God, Jesus, with eyes like blazing fire, feet like burnished bronze. May we know the power and authority of the Christ in our lives. May that give us the confidence and boldness not to give in and pander to what we should be resisting and standing up to. Not tolerating, but resisting. Father, I pray that you would empower and strengthen us. You'd help us to work out repentance in our lives if we need to make adjustments. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that your plan and purpose is to give increasing levels of authority to your church to be effective in the nations. We say, Jesus, we want that. Jesus, you've called us to that. Help us to walk in that. Friends, just with your eyes closed, if, if you're here and have never made the deliberate decision to bow your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then we would love to pray that prayer with you today. And it might start off with, are you willing to be obedient to Jesus? Because if he's pushing that button in your heart, then you'll know it because your heart is beating so fast. So the first step is to respond to that. And I'm going to be praying for some folk here on the little red carpet on my right. We would love to pray with you and introduce you to Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your incredible love for us. Thank you that as we go, we go knowing your gracious hand rests upon us in Jesus' name. And God's people saying...